morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you are here. Hey, if you are a guest of ours, we want you to know that we are honored to have you with us this morning. Welcome to everyone who's joining us online as well. In the words of Bob Dylan, the times, they are a-changing. And looks like we all survived the time change this morning, so congratulations. Although this is the easy one, right? An extra hour of sleep. Uh, that's the easy one, until tonight when it's dark at 6 o'clock. I like what, I like what Keith shared. Uh, don't forget to set your clocks from sunshine and happiness back to misery and despair. <laughs> Which is exactly how I feel you know, when it gets dark so early. But uh, glad that you are here, that for the most part you're awake and ready to go. Those of you who usually sleep through the sermon, you're going to be so rested by lunchtime today. <laughs> like two extra hours of sleep. So I feel good about that. So there, there's two elderly women who have been friends for decades. And they'd shared all kinds of adventures and trips together, but their health had caused them to sort of just uh, slow down and, and play cards a couple of times a week together. So one afternoon they're playing cards and this older woman looks at her older friend and she says, now don't get mad at me, but I can't remember your name. <laughs> I know that we are best friends, I know that we have been friends forever, and I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but I honestly can't remember your name. Would you please tell me your name? Her friend just glared at her. For three minutes, glared at her, didn't say a word. Finally, through clenched teeth, she said, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Fadia. We're all getting older, right? No matter what age you are, you are getting older. We're all one day closer to the end, one day further from the beginning. You know, aging, it's just another word for dying, right? <laughs> it's not that we're just aging, we're all, we're all in the process of, of dying, right? Uh, this morning, we are wrapping up this sermon series that's called Make It Count. And we have spent several weeks talking about the brevity of life. And I told you at the very beginning of this thing that it had the, uh, the potential to be a really depressing sermon series. And I hope that it hasn't been too depressing. I hope that it's been encouraging. I hope that it's been a little bit uh, challenging as well. I also mentioned at the beginning of this thing that if you were younger than like 35, you had no idea what we were going to be talking about. None of this would make any sense to you because you never think about the end of your life when you're that young. Intellectually, when you're young, you know you're going to die someday, but you're going to be in your 80s or your 90s, and you know it's, it's nowhere on your radar. Of course, those of us who are a little bit older will tell you that, yes, the days go slow, but the months and the years go very, very fast. So my goal these past couple weeks has not been to depress you. My goal has been to impress upon you how fragile life is, how brief our lives really are, that tomorrow should not be taken for granted. These series of sermons, they, they haven't meant to be morbid, but I hope they've been sobering. Now maybe that's why the Bible so often compares our lives to a race, 
Barrett Poe. Where's Barrett? I saw, I saw him walk in here this morning. He stepped out. <laughs> Barrett runs a lot of races. He runs them very fast. This past weekend, he was in Tallahassee for the state meet, the cross-country uh, state meet. I heard he did very, very well. Barrett will tell you, every race has a beginning point, and every race has an ending point. The race that we're running, we all know it had a beginning point. We all know when our birthday was. We're not exactly sure where the finish line is in this life, but we know that it's coming. And intellectually, we know it, it, it's coming pretty quickly. Because every metaphor that the Bible uses to talk about our lifespan emphasizes brevity. Your life is a mist. It's a vapor. Dust in the wind. Smoke. Shadow. Here today. Gone tomorrow. So... We have, in the past couple of weeks, heard some wisdom from Moses, from Solomon. We've looked at a couple of stories that Jesus told. And this morning, we are going to take a look at some words from the brother of Jesus, a guy by the name of James. And if you remember back in the spring, I preached uh, through the book of James. And during that series, I bumped up against a passage that I want to go back and, and revisit this morning kind of revisit in the context of making our lives count. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be. So you can go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to the fourth chapter of James. And in this particular passage, James is going to speak directly to people who work. He's going to talk to people who are in the marketplace, people who get up and punch a clock every day. And we ought to pay attention to what James has to say because most of us get up and go to work in the morning. Most of you, tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. And our work life has the propensity to cause us to minimize or maybe even ignore the fact that our lives are short. So, here's what James has to say. James chapter 4, I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, earlier in the book, James is going to compare two different kinds of wisdom. He says there's, there's wisdom from above, there's godly wisdom, and then there's worldly wisdom. And I don't know if there's any place where worldly wisdom is more evident than in the marketplace, than when you, you go to work. Notice the verbs that James uses when he talks about this. Go, spend a year, carry on business, make money, all predicated on the assumption that somehow we can will our future into being. Does that remind you of anybody else we just talked about in this series? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound a little bit like barn guy? Remember Jesus told the story about the man who had such a great year with his crops that he didn't know where to put all the excess crops, so he decides I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns so I have room to store all my stuff. 
And then he started bragging about his life. And I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink, I'm going to be merry because I am going to be set for years to come. You remember what Jesus called that man? You fool. You are a fool if you think you can control the future. What barn guy missed was the fact that his life was a mist. James tells us, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow because your life is a vapor. You know, the older we get, the easier it is to look back on our lives and see all of the detours that our lives have taken. Now, when we're young, we kind of have an idea of where our life is going to go and how our life is going to play out. And then we start living life and things start happening. And we find ourselves taking all these detours, hitting all these off-ramps, all these stops along the way, unexpected turns. Things happen that we don't plan for. And James says, if you think that you can control the future, you are going to be a boastful and arrogant person. And James knows that the marketplace can intensify that kind of attitude. So James says, you need to tone it down a little bit. Okay? Don't become arrogant. Stay grounded. And he's going to give us a couple thoughts on uh, some strategies to do that. Ways that we can humble ourselves to, so we can make a living. Not just make a living, but also make a life. And the first thing that James says is you need to remember a pretty simple um, premise, and that is God is in charge. In James 4 here, by the way, I don't think in any way he's condemning or criticizing someone who makes plans. if, If you work for a living, if you're an employer, an employee, you need to be doing some planning and some projecting about your career. You know, the old saying, you need to plan the work, work the plan, which, by the way, is biblical. Proverbs 21, 5, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. Hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. James isn't saying that it's wrong to have a savings account. He's not saying that you shouldn't be saving for your children's education or you shouldn't be uh, uh, investing in a 401k or an IRA. But he is saying as you make your plans, you need to remember that the future does not recognize you as being in charge of anything. Now, our lives are constantly being affected by things that we didn't plan on, things that we really have no control over. You know, we're going down some certain path and then we have a health issue, or someone we love has a health issue, and our lives get changed, our paths get altered, or, or the economy crashes. You know, I lose my job, uh, uh, you know, I lose all my savings, and our lives get changed. Or something happens in a relationship. The marriage didn't survive, the friendship didn't last. It changes our lives. We're constantly making adjustments to all the detours that we have. Only God is sovereign. Only God is in complete control, able to announce the future and know that it's going to come to pass. That's why James says, if it's the Lord's will. You need to be saying, if it's the Lord's will, we'll go and do these things. But what does he really mean when he says that? Because we hear that, right? 
But usually I hear it as a cliche. Well, Lord willing. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll get that done. You know, we kind of say it, but I'm not sure we actually acknowledge our um, giving up uh, of control. James is saying you need to live your life with the attitude, with the mindset, that just because I want something to happen, for that matter, just because I need something to happen, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Because I'm not in charge. God's in charge. And you say, well, is it really possible to live a life that way? Well, the Apostle Paul thought that it was. Paul, in Acts chapter 18, he's, he's speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus. He says, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. And then he closes out his first letter to the church in Corinth like this. This time I don't want to make, this time I don't want to make just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay a while if the Lord will let me. Then he wrote to the Christians in Rome. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. Paul learned, and he learned it pretty much the hard way, that he might as well go ahead and acknowledge it right up front, if it's God's will, then I'll do this, or I'll do that, because I'm not in charge. God is in charge. True wisdom, true humility, acknowledges that we are going to give up the right to change our plans to God, because God's will is going to be done. I don't know about you, but when I travel someplace, when I drive somewhere that I'm not familiar with, I usually have my GPS on. And I usually pay attention to my GPS. Now, I remember before the days of GPS. In fact, last month I was with my cousin in Pennsylvania. I got in the back seat of his truck, and he had an atlas in the seat. And I'm like, what? This thing has to be dated like 1973, right? I mean, he goes, no, I use it all the time. I said, you are kidding me. No, I use it all the time. I never use an atlas anymore, okay? I use my GPS, and I listen to my GPS, especially when I don't know where I am, because every now and then, my GPS will tell me, accident in two miles, take next detour. You know what I do? I take the next detour, because I am trusting in a higher power. <laughs> I am trusting in my GPS to see things that I can't see and to know things that I don't know and to tell me what I need to do when we're on this path of life, let's trust in a higher power to see things that we can't see, to know things that we don't know. Proverbs 16.9, we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps, which is actually really good news. It's really good news that the Lord directs our steps. For one thing, we don't have that many steps to take. This whole sermon series has been about the brevity of life. We need to be humble enough to acknowledge that God's in control. And I'm going to allow God to direct my steps. By the way, this is not just a New Testament concept. Uh, Proverbs 21, 27, verse 1. Don't brag about tomorrow, since you don't know what the day will bring. It's exactly what James is trying to tell us in the New Testament. He's not saying it's wrong to travel. It's not wrong to do business. It's not wrong to make money. Not wrong to have plans. He's just telling us, if you think you're in charge of what's going to happen in the future, you are wrong. <laughs> we don't know 
what the future holds. Look again at verse 14 back in James. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We all know that cemeteries are full of people who had big plans for tomorrow. But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Toward the very end of her life, Irma Bombeck wrote a, a very famous article entitled, If I Had My Life to Live Over. Let me share just a, a little bit of that with you. If I had my life to live over, I would have talked less and listened more. I would have invited friends over for dinner, even if the carpet was stained or the sofa faded. If I had my life to live over, I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have burned the pink candle sculpted like a rose before it melted in storage. I would have sat on the lawn with my children, not worried about grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less while watching television and more while watching life. If I had my life to live over, I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of pretending the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for the day. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy, I'd have cherished every moment and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was the only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. If I had my life to live over, when my kids kissed me impetuously, I never would have said, not now, go get cleaned up for dinner. There would have been more I love yous, more I'm sorries, but mostly, given another shot at life, I would seize every minute, look at it, really see it, live it, and never give it back. You know, sociologists tell us that when we are young, our greatest regrets are over things that we do, over things that we say. When we get older, our greatest regrets are the things that we didn't do and all of those things that we left unsaid. Now, regardless of what we might try to convince ourselves of, life is short. Life is not guaranteed. We're not entitled to another day. Every day is a mercy. Every day is a grace. Listen, you got out of bed this morning. You got dressed. You had a measure of health that enabled you to be here this morning. That's a gift. We need to recognize that as a gift. As much as we'd like to, we, we can't add years to our life. We can, however, add life to our years. Which leads me to a second thing that, that I think James is trying to teach us. Knowing that our dash is short, knowing that our days are numbered, we need to take advantage of what I'm calling the opportunity of right now. James wants us to know that while you're not in charge of the future, you can take advantage of what's going on right now. And I think that's why he added the last verse in that paragraph, verse 17. I never really understood before why verse 17 was in that particular paragraph. It always seemed out of place. But the more I think about it and study in this context, I think James knew exactly what he was doing. He, follow, he ends this whole life is a mist narrative with this thought. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. We quote that verse all the time. I have seen that verse pulled out of context for all kinds of reasons. But here's why I think it makes sense in this context. 
James, I think, is telling us, you are so obsessed with what you're going to do next month. You are so obsessed with what you're going to do next year that you are oblivious to what's going on right here, right now. You're missing all the opportunities that's in front of you right here, right now. You're thinking about where you're going to go, what you're going to do when you get there. You're missing the moments of right now. There is good to do today. But you're not doing good today because you're so obsessed with tomorrow. The Bible is constantly encouraging us to live in the moment. The good that we can do right now. Like Galatians 6.10. Whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. That's a powerful statement, by the way. Whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good. We should be kind. We should show, show grace to everyone, especially to our Christian brothers and sisters. Because isn't the old adage true that life is what happens when you're busy making plans? And I'll repeat myself in this series and tell you again that you do not have time to do everything you've planned to do in your life. You just won't have time to do everything you've got planned. But you will have time to do everything that God has planned for you to do. You have time to do everything God wants you to do with your life, but you're going to have to take advantage of the opportunities of right now. James wants you to recognize the value of the moment. You know, life doesn't always go according to plan. You've got all kinds of detours, all kinds of stops along the way, all types of interruptions. And I think about how calmly Jesus handled interruptions. Now you think about it. Jesus was constantly being interrupted. He was constantly having needy people demanding things from him. You know, things that he wasn't planning on dealing with, things that he hadn't penciled into his day, but someone comes and they've got an issue, they've got a need, they've got a want. He's constantly being interrupted. And it frustrated the disciples to no end, but it never seems to frustrate Jesus. It never seemed to bother Jesus to be interrupted. Jesus was able to live his life so in tune to the whispers of the Holy Spirit that he didn't see those interruptions as something that was getting in the way of his work. Instead, he saw those interruptions, those changes of plans, those detours, those interruptors as his work. And he took advantage of every opportunity of right now. So he didn't live frenzied. He didn't live frustrated. Truth is, he didn't live long. But again, he lived long enough to do everything that God asked him to do and that God asked him to accomplish. So we too need to be a little bit more gracious, a little bit more graceful in the interruptions and the detours and the distractions, the disruptions of life. Because God is in those disruptions. God is in those detours. As I wrap up this series, let me, let me end it with, with one more story. Several years ago now, but most of us will remember the horrific shooting incident at Virginia Tech University. Shortly after that tragedy, uh, the university uh, organized a memorial service, a very intentionally Christian memorial service, 
And they invited the, the brilliant Christian writer, uh, Philip Yancey, to come speak at that memorial service. Coincidentally, Philip Yancey, just a few months earlier, had just survived a near-death experience himself, and he referenced that in his comments. And I want to just read for you what Philip Yancey said uh, in, his, in his remarks. Here's what he had to say. Reality came starkly home to me nine weeks ago today when I was driving on a winding road in Colorado. Suddenly I missed a curve, and my Ford Explorer slipped off the pavement and started tumbling side to side at 60 miles an hour. An ambulance appeared, and I spent the next seven hours strapped to a bodyboard with duct tape across my head to keep it from moving. A CAT scan showed that a vertebrae high on my neck had been shattered and that sharp bone fragments were sticking out next to a major artery. The hospital had a jet fly me to Denver for emergency surgery. I had one arm free, holding a cell phone with little battery. I spent those tense hours calling people close to me knowing that it might be the last time I ever hear their voices. It was an odd sensation to lie there helpless, aware, knowing that though I was fully conscious, at any moment I could die. Samuel Johnson said, when a man's about to be hanged, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. When you're strapped to a bodyboard after a serious injury, it concentrates your mind. And I realized how much my life focused on trivial things. During those seven hours, I didn't think about how many books I'd sold or what kind of car I drove. It was being towed to a junkyard anyway. All that mattered boiled down to four questions. Who do I love? Who am I going to miss? What have I done with my life? And am I ready for what's next. Who do I love? Who am I going to miss? What have I done with my life? Am I ready for what's next? Now the Bible asks the question, what is your life? And it answers, your life is a mist. Your life is a vapor. It's just a shadow. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. So it's time to, to wise up, to get serious, and make every day count. So, Father, I'm praying in the powerful name of Jesus that we will have the courage and the faith and the desire to put an end to foolishness and to step instead into a life of purpose. And whether you give us one more or many more days, that we would make the most of it. And on that day, when our strength is failing, the end is near and our time has come, still, on that day, may your praise be unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. For Jesus' sake and in his name, Amen. As a congregation, if we can help you this morning in any way, we invite you to come to the front and let us know. Let's go ahead and be standing as we sing.